congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ. Whether we can think it out, or whether we can clearly define it or not, we all have a sense that each one of us is his or her own person. We're, we're individuals. We have an individual identity, and that's not something at least we share with others. It's, it's our own identity. We're individuals. Yet, as individuals, we're also deeply connected to other things. Things outside of ourselves, outside of our individual personal experience, of our individuality, there are things outside of us that are very important to helping us understand who we are. People, places, experiences. These connections, these outside connections, vary. They're not all the same. They, they, they differ one from another. But we cannot say they have no impact on our persons. We must say they do impact our persons. And even our individual person, who I am, as Tim Prusik, and who you are in your own individual life, it's, it's, it's not all self-contained within your own skin. Right? Part, part of being a person, an individual, is relating to these outside connections. These connections vary, but we cannot say they have no impact on our persons. That is, our individuality is at least conditioned by the connections outside of ourselves. We are not islands. We are connected. God has made us that way. These outside connections are real connections. These outside connections impact our individuality, impact us as persons. There are are connections I have both to people and places and experiences and so on that help define who Tim is. It's not just something internal that I come up with. It's, It's this reality of an individual person in connection with all sorts of other people and events and places that God has put us in time and history. So it's this kind of interesting connection between individuality and sharing life together as humans, but sharing life together as humans in this place, on the earth, and in history. So the impact that these connections outside of our have, outside of ourselves has are important on our individuality and are real. This real impact can, cha- can range from being very minuscule, not particularly important. The connections we have outside ourselves can be formulative, but they can also be absolutely definitive as far as who we are. There's a whole range of how these connections impact us as people, as individual people. Now, the Bible teaches us over and over again to think in these ways, though we might find that some of these ways of thinking about ourselves are kind of foreign. We don't think the way the Bible tells us to think. And I want to try to adjust that a little bit this morning and help us see something in verse 16 of Romans chapter 11 where Paul says, If the lump is holy, so is the whole batch. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. He's getting out of way of us understanding ourselves in the connections that God has formed for us that we should have a faithful and biblical understanding of who we are individually and beyond. Here's an example of this. Every individual, every person, man, woman, child, has a distinct and definite, real relationship with the first man God created. It's not a pretend relationship. It's a real relationship each one of us has with Adam. God made Adam a public figure representing all of us. In Adam's fall, we sinned all to go back to the primer, the New England primer, that's it. There's a real connection we have with Adam, like it or not, 
deny it, affirm it, it's true, we have a real connection with Adam and his sin. Similarly, every believer, every believing Christian has a relationship with Jesus Christ. A real relationship. You might say, well, that's kind of ethereal, or it's, it's kind of, you know, it's not like I can give him a hug. I can walk up to Adoree, and often do, and give her a hug and say, okay, I have a physical and personal relationship with Adoree, farmer. True enough. But we also have a real relationship, just as real as the relationship is with Adoree, with Adam, and with Christ, though they are spiritual and invisible to us, but no less real, and far more impacting. Because every one of us is tied to Adam unto death. Every one of us. And everyone who believes in the Lord Jesus Christ is tied into Christ and the life. Really connected and tied, even if invisibly and spiritually. So both of these examples, Adam and Christ, are absolutely definitive. Absolutely definitive for who a person is. A person is either in Adam and dead... Or a person is in Christ and alive unto God. Those are definitive realities that are connections we have outside of our individual persons that define who we are. All the way down to the ground. All the way down to the back molars in our mouths. Now there are many connections like this. Not all of them are absolute and, and totally definitive like Adam and Christ. But there are lots of connections God makes for us and shows us, reveals to us in Scripture. And I want to explore that particularly, again, based upon the images of the lump and the batch and the root and the branches. But first, let me introduce at least this terminology of corporate holiness. Corporate holiness. Now, when you hear the word corporate, you think of Google or you think of, you know, whatever. You think of a corporation, we have that word. But, of course, corporation just means a body of people, a bunch of people forming a body for some particular purpose. And so we have a corporate, in the scripture revealed, a corporate holiness of the people of God. So corpus, again, just means the body. And that body of people is defined by a number of things. First, by the rights. Now, I think of the Old Testament people of God. There's a right in which, by which they were incorporated and brought into the people of God. What is that right? Without which you were not an Israelite. Circumcision. Right, there's, there's a rite, there's, a, there's a, a, a ritual that has gone through to become part of this visible people of God. And of course, there's also the revelation of God to that people. We discussed that a little bit in Psalm 135. God hadn't chosen all the nations of the world and revealed himself and told them who he was and told them how he wanted to be worshipped and given them the covenants and all that. He did that to one nation, Israel. And so they're marked out. They're separated. They're a possession of God's to himself as we read in Psalm 135, his peculiar possession. Well, you know, we read that about Israel, but we read in First Timothy, or I'm sorry, First Peter, just the same thing about the church. We are God's peculiar people. And it's because we're brought into the promises, the covenant promises, given to Abraham so many generations ago. We're incorporated as Gentiles into that. But I'm getting ahead of myself. There's a corporate, that is, the, of the body, of a particular people, not all people, but a particular body of people, and they are holy to the Lord. That is, they're set apart to God. They're not the world. They're God's people. Does that mean that, that of that corporate body, of the, whole, of the whole body that's set apart to God, that every one of them saved eternally? Not at all. In fact, it's never been that way. In fact, as we read through Romans 9, 10, particularly 11, we think, oh, with Israel, it's almost been the opposite. 
there's a remnant that's saved. Though the number be as the sand of the, of the sea, a remnant will be saved. But they're still God's holy people, even if they end up being under his judgment because they're unrighteous, and he's called them part, and they've rejected that, you see. So there's, what, I, what, I, what I want to put before you is throughout the Scripture, throughout the Scripture, you're either in Adam and dead, in Christ and alive by faith, but the way in which people come to Christ in the promises of God is through the body that he has called unto himself the people of God. To which the prophets address themselves, saying, will you serve God or not? God is your God, will you serve him or will you deny him? And so on. So the prophets speak to the separated people of God. This corporate holiness, this separated people of God. Now Paul uses two images here, the lump and the root, and I think they're both getting at exactly that. The historical reality of the people of God and how that factors into what Paul's dealing with here in Romans chapter 11. Now, what's Paul dealing with here in Romans chapter 11? He's asking the question, well, what about Israel? What happened here, right? Christ came unto his own people and by and large they rejected him. How's that? And what's more then, not only did the people of God reject Messiah, but then all these crazy nasty Gentiles came to believe, and they're flooding into this thing while Israel is cut out of it. What do we make of that? Right? That's what Paul's doing in, in Romans chapters 9 through 11. So I want to take quickly verses 13, 14, and 15 as we run up into, into, um, into verse 16. Paul says, Now I speak to you as Gentiles, inasmuch as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry. God called Paul not to be one of the twelve ministering in Jerusalem, as they were, and then from there they go out. But he called Paul the Apostle to be an Apostle not to Israel, but to the nations. The thirteenth Apostle, to all the rest of the nations. Twelve for one nation and one for all the rest of the nations. And that's Paul. That's his ministry. So Paul is magnifying his ministry, calling the Gentiles into repentance, calling them into Christ, the Messiah. And as he does that, he has a purpose for Israel as well. Verse 14, in order somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous and thus save some of them. Right? So he's ministering to the Gentiles. They're coming to faith and he's hoping, he's, there's a dynamic here that's going to provoke Israel, the Jews after the flesh, to, to say, hey, we've missed, our, we've missed it. We've missed our Messiah. Let's go get him. Right? To bring them into Christ uh, where they are out of, tri- of Christ at, this, at the time he's writing. Verse 15, for if their rejection, Israel's rejection, means reconciliation of the world. We've already discussed that, how Israel rejected the gospel, and God turned to the Gentiles, and they're flooding in. If that's what's going on, verse 15, if their rejection means reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? So Paul's laying an implicit hope for his reader that, yes, Israel's rejected Messiah. And that's a great blessing to you Gentiles. Let me hear you say amen, Presbyterians. No Jews out here, right? You're saved because the Jews fell and the gospel came to the nations. What an incredible benefit to us. And we'll read that a little bit later on as, we, as, as Paul kind of, from verse 17 on, starts working with the, the image of the olive tree and the branches being grafted and so on. And we're wild olive shoots, which are worthless. Worse than worthless. And they're grafted into this thing, this, this standing olive tree. So we'll get to that and the dynamics of this kind of covenantal deal of grafting in and out. But for the moment, Paul introduces this hope, right? He's kind of summarizing this hope of Israel. He's mentioned it before. He says, you know, if, this, if their rejection is good to the Gentiles, and if their rejection is a blessing to the, uh, to the nations, how much more will it be when they're included? 
How much more to be like life from the dead? And then he says verse 16. Now, have you ever read this and say, what's he doing in verse 16? Because if you just took out verse 16, it might make more sense. Right? If you just read from 15 to 17 and took out 16, it might make more sense. But verse 16 to me reveals the entirety of biblical doctrine of covenant. Okay? Verse 16 bears the weight of all of Scripture and the covenantal realities, the way God has made us to connect. Not just as individuals relating to Him, but as people groups, and particularly as Israel, His own people, His treasured possession. Look at verse 16 then. If the dough offered as first fruits is holy, so is the whole lump. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. And then he goes on there again, uses the olive tree, and moves on with the image there. But let's pause with verse 16 here and look at those two images. The lump, that is the kind of, you know, if, if you have a batch of, of batter and of dough that you've made, and, and you've cooked, making up some bread, making up some bread, God has required, and we read that, and we'll read it again just in a moment here, in Numbers, that that be offered to the Lord. There be an offering made of that, of the first fruits of it, we'll see, to the Lord, and as those first fruits are holy, given to the Lord, so the whole batch is holy, given to the Lord. So flip back there, keep your finger where we're at, but flip back to Numbers chapter 15, we'll read that again. And again, starting in verse 17. Yahweh spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, When you come into the land to which I will bring you, so this is before the, uh, the conquest, right? looking forward as, as Israel's in the wilderness yet for their 40 years of discipline before they go back in, saying, When you get in there, okay, when you get into the land and you start baking some bread, here's what I want you to do. Yahweh said to Moses, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, When you come into the land to which I bring you, and when you eat of the bread of the land, you shall present a contribution to Yahweh. Of the first of your dough, you shall present a loaf as a contribution, like a contribution from the threshing floor, so similar to the grain offering. You shall present it. Some of the first of your dough you shall give to Yahweh as a contribution throughout your generations. So this, is, this, this ought to, as you read that, remind you of a tithe. Right? That's, that's, this, this is the tithing principle. It's the first fruits principle. And it's something, again, you see regularly through Scripture, particularly in the Old Testament. You see it a lot with the offerings, but we see it in the New Covenant as well. Offering to God the first. Say, when you, when you collect your harvest, after you've done your work, and after you've sown, and you've finally come to reap, once you begin to reap your harvest, not the second part of it, not the last part of it, the first fruits are God's. They belong to God. And part of the tithing principle is this, listen, and don't miss it, is as you give those first fruits to God, the rest of it is holy to God as well. As you give your first tenth to God, as your, your tithe, the other 90% is God's too. He lets you have it. He lets you keep it. He lets you do what you want with it. But it's all holy to the Lord. It's, it's His. Right? It's separated unto Him. And the tithing principle is, I'll give you the first portion, the first fruits, with recognition that all of it is yours, God. You get that? So the tithe itself is an indication that all of it is God's. All of it is holy to God. And he says, give me one-tenth to show that. And it's, the same thing goes on here with the dough. Hey, when you, when you finally get in there and you're able to make some bread, and it takes some doing to bake some bread, right? You don't just walk into farmland and say, hey, let's have some bread. There's a lot of doing that goes on before you finally get loaves out of the oven. Right? But when you get those loaves out of the oven, the first one goes to Yahweh. It's a contribution to Him. 
indicating, just as Paul says in, in chapter 11, verse 16, that the whole batch is holy. If the first lump is holy, the whole batch is holy. That's the tithe principle. That's the first fruits principle. Flip the page over to Leviticus 19. You'll see the same thing. Leviticus, Leviticus 19, a famous chapter. Um, it's nothing else because it has this, uh, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, an important passage. But look down at verse, verses 23 and following. Leviticus 19, verse 23, a couple of verses. When you come into the land, okay, same thing, you know, God's commanding them. So when they get into, you know, into, into Israel, this is how they're going to operate. You shall regard any kind of tree. Let me start again. When you come into the land and plant any kind of tree for food, then you shall regard its fruit as forbidden. Now, maybe if you have a Bible there and it has a little footnote, you're provide this, this tree and its fruit is are uncircumcised. That's what the word is. It's an uncircumcised tree. It must needs be circumcised, which, of course, the imagery of circumcision is the cutting out of the old and the, the, the newness of the new. So that's the, the land is that way as well. Let's try it again here. When you come into the land and plant any kind of tree for food, you shall regard its fruit as uncircumcised. Three years that shall be un, it shall be forbidden to you. It must not be eaten. And the fourth year, all of its fruit shall be holy, an offering of praise to Yahweh. But in the fifth year, you may eat of its fruit to increase its yield for you. I am Yahweh, your God. So, as, as God deals with us and our productivity, our, our whatever, if we're employees or if we're students or if we're business owners or however it is, as we come into our increase, God says, first of all, everything is mine. And if you're faithful to me, Christian, if you're faithful to God, you'll give your tithe. You'll give your first fruits of your harvest. Because it's all God's. It's all his, and that's the tithe principle. You're going to give that first fruits, indicating that the whole thing is belonging to God. And as a, this applies, of course, in the Old Covenant, we can see here with, with food and so on, but also applies to monies and to our increase now. So as you come to the Lord's house, and as you tithe and you bring your offering, you must remember that this tithe principle indicates for you, Christian, all of you, all of your family, all of your powers and skills, all of your money and your ability to make money and to, and to exert yourself, all of that's God's. It all belongs to Him. And so you show that, you confirm that covenantally by bringing the first fruits in. That's what God has required. Now, think about the first fruits for just a moment. What's the difference between the first fruits and the last fruits? Well, it's timing. What's more exciting? Well, for different reasons. What's more exciting, the first fruits of harvest or the last fruits? Oh, the first fruits, maybe. It's finally come, right? All this work we've been doing for months. Oh, it's finally coming to fruition, right? This is the good stuff. This is the fat. God says, I want that. That, that most exciting piece of it, I want it. You give it to me. And we say, what? Well, that's the best part. Right? God wants the best part. Now, that goes all directions. Right? When we come to offer something to God, we offer Him the best of what we have. We don't, uh, just like the sacrificial lamb, say, you don't get the nasty one, it's all kicked around, and got a jacked up face, and say, let's take that one to the offering for God. He says, no, no, no. I don't want the one with the jacked up face. I don't want the one all messed up. You bring me the best of your flock, and you sacrifice the best. 
And we say, well, what a waste. What a waste. But if you think that's a waste, you don't understand God and how he works. You don't understand that God knows how to multiply out of nothing. How to take a few loaves and a couple fish and feed thousands and have left over. You don't get it. If you say, no, I'm going to keep that first fruits for myself. I'm not going to give that to God. Go back to the prophet Micah. This is, God says, you're robbing yourself if you don't pay me the tithe. If you don't bring your first fruits into my house. Because your whole lives, our whole lives, belong to God. And the tithing, the first fruit, this idea of the loaf that we see here in Paul indicates that we're all in. It's all of God's. It's all His. And we confirm that by our tithes. Let me mention one more thing about the tithe and the first fruits. It, gives, it goes into how we treat other people as well. Sometimes we think of, we never use the term, almsgiving. You know what that means? Almsgiving. Giving to the poor. Right? Uh, the, the, ch- the church, going back to Constantine, the things we're talking about this morning, was renowned in those centuries for caring for the poor. When we care for the poor, we don't just give them the junk out of the bottom of the freezer. We say, I got some corn dogs been in there for, you know, for eight or ten months. Let's see about defrosting those and uh, feed them some freezer bird. No, you, you, you give of your fatness. You give of your abundance. You give of your goodness, not just to God in worship, but to others as well. We give of our goodness. And watch God multiply and multiply and multiply that goodness. We don't give from the bottom of the barrel. We give from the top. Christian, we give, we outdo one another in our graciousness and in our kindness. Now, this is all kind of application, getting back to what Paul's grabbing onto from Numbers 15. God says, give the first lump of the batch of bread, and all of the bread is holy unto God. Now, what is the lump he's talking about? What is the batch? Back to, Revel- or back to Romans chapter 11. And from verse 16, look right down that chapter to verse 28 and 29, where he kind of brings a finer point to it here. Verse 28. As regards the gospel, they, that is Israel after the flesh, the ones who have been rejected and rejected Christ and so on, they, as regards the gospel, they are enemies for your sake, Gentile believers. But as regards election, they are beloved for the sake of their fathers. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. Or irrevocable, if you prefer that pronunciation. But God has called Israel. He will fulfill that call to Israel. But they're, now, right now he says they're your enemies, Christian, because they're opposed to the gospel. But they are beloved for the sake of their fathers. From Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God has loved and said, I make a covenant with you and your children throughout the generations. That is still intact. We Gentiles are brought into it. We're outsiders put in. But that thing is still intact. And listen to this. Israel is beloved of God. Now, what does that mean? We're not Arminians. Are we? Surely hope not. We don't think God just loves everybody. We know that God's love is selective in Christ Jesus. And here the scriptures say they are beloved for the sake of the fathers. That's the dough. Right? That's the root. And we as, as New Covenant Christians, Gentiles, are brought into this thing that's already there. It's been made holy. God has made this thing holy. He's made the people holy. And we're incorporated into it. And the lump is an example 
of that. So back up to verse 16. Back up to verse 16. If the dough offered as first fruits is holy, so the whole lump. The dough offered as first fruits is holy are the fathers. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Israel. The whole batch is still set apart unto God. The whole batch is still corporately holy, including the unbelieving Jews. They're part of this covenant. They're set apart unto God. And that's the basis on which Paul's saying there's hope for Israel. When they, when they receive Christ, they want to be like life from the dead? Because God has this covenant. And the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. So if we move to the other image, the root and the branches, we come a little closer to something, maybe it's simpler to understand, or maybe it's just simply more intuitive. We understand that, if nothing else, the branches grow out and from the root. They draw their sustenance from the root. And if the root's a certain way, the branches will be a certain way, right? Uh, and that's, so that's kind of an easy growing metaphor that's not maybe quite as tied into biblical doctrine as the lump and, and the, the whole mess of bread. So again, the root. What is the root Paul's talking about? In, in the context of Paul saying, hey, Israel's rejection has been great for the Gentiles, that salvation has come to us, but what will their fullness be? And then brings up the batch of bread and here the root and the branches. He's saying there's a root of Israel that still has the branches that are holy. They're still set apart unto God. So the root might be found here in Ephesians chapter 2. Another example of or articulation of it. Flip over to Ephesians chapter 2. So listen for the historical connectedness of what you are as a Christian and what we've been brought into. For that is the root. That is the first fruits in the dough that continues to make the whole batch holy. And all the branches, and the branches in the batch we're talking about, are unbelieving, largely unbelieving Israel. And, of course, the Gentiles engrafted into it. Starting at verse 11. Listen for the root and, uh, and the, the lump comments or ideas in here. Therefore, remember, you Gentiles, that you were at one time Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision by what is called circumcision, um, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you Gentiles were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise. Okay, well there you go. The commonwealth of Israel is where God had published his promises, where he made his revelation, where he called the people unto himself, the commonwealth of Israel, and given them his promises and covenant. You Gentiles used to be apart from that. You didn't have any part of it. It wasn't made with you. But in Christ Jesus, now you're brought near unto these things. You're made partakers of them. You're a branch grafted in. The root is this great covenant in history God has with his people, to which you were formerly excluded, from which you were formerly excluded, and to which you are now included in Christ Jesus. He goes on. I'll keep reading this little section. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were afar off and been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he himself is our peace. And then, of course, he's dealing with the warring nature between Jews and Gentiles and God making peace in this, which is the idea here. And then he gets down to verse 18. For through him we both, Jews and Gentiles, for him we both, in him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. 
So then, you Gentiles are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. There again is the root. The apostles are the new covenant part, but the prophets are from old. Okay, this is this bound together reality we'll call covenant that God has revealed this salvation all the way through. And we Gentiles who are far from it have been brought near unto it. That's the dough. That's the root. The work of God in history, calling his people, separating his people, teaching them and leading them, saving them as he saves them according to his blessed will, according to his election. But then we Gentiles are brought near unto that work he's been doing. You understand? So there's that root, there's that thing that continues to go, that from Abraham on is a, is a holy people unto God, even though they're often under discipline and being uh, checked by God that way. Yet it is the people of God, a corporate holy people unto God, a, a treasured possession for his own possession. Now, if Israel, the covenant, the, the covenant, the commonwealth, is all this, this kind of historic reality, this, this dough and this root that God has separated unto himself then, um, and it's called here, a root and branches, does it make you think of another passage where Jesus talks about branches and a, a vine? Not a root, but branches. So flip over to, uh, to John chapter 15. John chapter 15. We hear Jesus speaking in a similar way, though I think the reference point is different, but will help us out in seeing this corporate holiness too. So this very famous passage, John chapter 15. I am the true vine, and my father is the vine dresser. Okay, so in, in view here, we'll have, we'll have branches, vine, and vine dresser. Vine dresser is the father. The vine is Jesus Christ, and those who are in him are being talked about. So the root isn't quite in view here. So I think it's a different, similar, but different analogy to what we have in Romans. We'll keep moving here. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word I have spoken to you. Okay, well, already you are clean because of the word I have spoken to you. There's the revelation of God into his holy people. He's speaking into the holy. He said, I'm, I'm calling you out by my word. Does that mean everyone who hears is holy and saved? No, but it means those who hear are holy unto God. They're brought as a treasured possession unto God into which he speaks his word. Will they hear it? Will you hear it? You're the treasured possession of the people of God. You've been brought into this thing. More on that later. Will you hear the word of God? Will you submit to the word of God? Or will you harden yourself like in the day of rebellion or like Israel has done? No. We can go on with that one. I don't need to. You guys have read it. The idea here is that Christ is a vine. He says, all those in me that do not bear fruit, what happens? They're cut out. They're cut out of Jesus. Jesus says, all those in me who don't bear fruit. He doesn't say all those who were never in me at all really anyway, right? Because they didn't really ever bear fruit, so never really in me. Right? We want to break it into bifurcated two parts. They're either elect or they're reprobate, and that's it. But God has this group of people that he's called out of the world, corporate holiness, in which he works, to which he addresses himself and promises and threats and promises of the covenant and so on. And he says, anyone in me who doesn't bear fruit, the vine dresser, my father, cuts out. Gathers those branches together, and you can think of John the Baptist as well, uh, and throws them into the fire. That shows you that there's a way of being in Christ that isn't unto salvation. 
Okay? That means there's a third way. It's not just out of Christ and in Christ and saved, but a corporate people that are in Christ that God has called apart to himself. A, a, a peculiar possession. Okay? That is the covenant. That's the people of God. And the scripture from the beginning to the end talks that way. There's a people of God, and that's where salvation is published. That's where the promises come. And that's where the elect of God come to believe and are united to Jesus by faith. So corporate holiness is in view here. right? Those in Christ who are cut out. Flip over one more time to 1 Corinthians chapter 7 to see just the same thing. 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Sorry, there's a lot of flipping today. Okay, kind of the air gets the air moving. Verses 12 through 16. See if you can understand from this text this kind of third position I'm talking about. Not being out of God entirely and lost and darkness and out of the covenants of promise, but neither those who are saved, who have a, a living trust in Christ, yet there are those who are drawn near under God. So listen to these. Let's start reading at verse 12. To the rest I say, I, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever, and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever, and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. We'll pause there. This isn't like a believer marrying an unbeliever and saying, well, I'm married to an unbeliever. It's two unbelievers. One got converted and now is married to an unbeliever. The scripture's super clear. You don't marry outside the faith. You don't marry outside the faith. That's that's not what this is talking about. It's two who are outside the faith, who got married and one came to believe, or two Jews and one came to believe in Messiah and the other didn't, or something like that. Anyway, back to verse 14 then. Here's Here's the point. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, here's the point, otherwise, if it weren't so, your children would be unclean. But as it is, they are holy. Okay, so there's a corporate holiness here. And you can see it through the family, but it's really the people of God altogether. We'll keep going. But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. For, here's the point, how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? That unbelieving spouse just got called holy, and they're unsaved. How do you know whether you save them? That shows that there is a third position, not just being out of God entirely, out of the covenants of promise from the state of Israel, and not just those who in faith believe in Christ, but a holy community, a people of God whom he separated unto himself and to which he publishes his promises, and his threats, his covenants, and his worship. All the things at the beginning of Romans 9, that Paul says Israel has all this stuff. That's the corporate holiness of the people of Israel. And it says if the lump is holy, the whole batch is holy. And if the root is holy, all the branches are holy, even if many of them are not even believing at the time Paul writes that. And he says that, saying this is the reason I hope for Israel, that they're full inclusion. Because the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. I hope you can see then this dimension of connectedness that God gives us. Not just as individuals where we individually relate to Him through through Messiah. That's true. No denying it. Each of us individually 
each of you individually must stand before God. The just God of the universe, no question. But as we travel through our lives, we are a part of a people that God has called to himself. Not the world, not necessarily the elect in the sense of, of, of Romans chapter 9, but the people that God has called to himself. He says, if the lump's holy, the whole thing is. It's still that way. And there's still a remnant coming. And all these Gentiles are flooding in. And there's this great hope of life from the dead. Based upon the covenant status of Israel, God's holy people. And that God doesn't mess around with his covenant and his promises. The gifts and calling of God are irrevocable. So, let's bring it down to what we like to call covenantal solidarities. The solidarity just being a coming together, a unity at one point which is this connectedness that I'm talking about. Right? This connectedness that God has placed. Not, you're not just an individual. You're connected up. The individual Israelite wasn't just an individual. He was part of the body, the holy body of God's people, that corporate holiness. So, we're deeply influenced, and I won't get into it, by individualism. Yeah, it's, a, it's a rampant thing in our, in our minds. and we To the point, it's like a fish in water. Don't know it's wet. We don't know if some of these things that really do influence us. But if we could see through this one and see how God deals with us by covenant as a people of God, we'd be seeing things far more biblically than we are as a bunch of individualists right? missing out on these connections that God has ordained and put and revealed to us in Scripture. God has deeply connected us in various ways. We Gentiles, who used to be outside of the body, outside of this corporately holy body, the state of Israel, the covenants of promises, we Christians have been brought near. Our connection then is with Christ. Christ, that one seed, the seed promised to Abraham, and in him we get to inherit all of the promises of Abraham. That's our connection. That's our covenantal relation to the mediator of the covenant. And we can look at Ephesians 2, like we just did, or Galatians chapter 3, to see just this very same thing. That we are now connected into the people of God. We're part of that holy commonwealth of Israel, set apart from the world unto God. And that's through Christ Jesus. He's the one who's brought us in. It's by faith then that we enter into that and the blessings of it. Okay, so we're, we who are far off have been brought near. That's a new connection, Christian. That wasn't there before. God forged a connection with you. To bring you into the covenant and the promises given to Abraham through Jesus Christ. But now that we are Christians, now as adults and so on, as you, as you believe on Christ and you're baptized and brought into the covenant people of God, that is the sign, by the way, of the new covenant. The sign of the old covenant is circumcision for inclusion. The sign of the new covenant is baptism for inclusion. And we can see from Colossians, they, they mean the same thing. They're getting at the same truth. Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the point, the one who circumcises without hands, the one who baptizes in his death, and so we are brought together in Christ Jesus. Now that we're in him, what of our children? What about the kiddos? There was never a question in the Old Covenant. They knew exactly what to make of their kiddos, or at least in that covenantal sense. Were the children of Israel included in the covenant? And were they given the sign of the covenant at eight days old, at least the male ones? Uh-huh. Sure were. Explicitly so. God said, do it. In fact, if you don't do it, they're not part of my people. Now they're unholy. If they don't receive that sign and become part of the people, the holy people of God. Does that mean everyone circumcised and saved? No. That's not the point. I mean, it is the point. That's what God's doing this thing for, is to save his people. But the point of the covenant is to set a people apart unto God. 
that they can learn from God and, and be discipled by Him in that. Now, do Christian children, that is to say children of believers, who we say adult believers, and we kind of think maybe in baptistic terms now, okay, we've been converted, we got baptized, what about the children? What about our children? Are they explicitly included in the covenant, in the holiness of this covenant? Yes, explicitly in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. We just read it. Your children are holy. And your, your wife and your husband, the unbelieving one, is holy. Otherwise, your children would be un, unclean. But they're not unclean. They're holy. They're holy unto God. Does that mean they're saved? Not necessarily. That's not what that means. But it does mean they're holy unto the Lord. They're part, part of the body. Are the children, as members of the covenant, addressed as insiders? As those belonging to the covenant in the New Testament? Absolutely. Absolutely. And directly and explicitly. Ephesians chapter 6. Children, obey your parents in the Lord. For what? It's always good that children obey their parents. That's a natural law. Well, of course it is. But that's not how Paul argues. What does he say? He says, there's a promise in the scripture for you. First commandment with promise, you Gentile Christian believers, the ones. The covenant promises of God are for the Gentile Christians as well and their children. Do you see? The children are holy unto God. They're commanded in the church unto God. Is there a sign that we could give them that would indicate that they're included in this covenant and that God speaks to them and they're not part of the world out there? Is there Baptist? There is. It's called baptism. Hence, infant baptism. That's, that's the case for infant baptism. Children are included in the covenant expressly. And therefore, they should be given the sign of that covenant, which is baptism. There's your, there's your argument from the scriptures for infant baptism. Okay, based on this kind of covenant setup of these connections that God forges. Not that we forge. We don't make them up. But God has, and he's revealed them to us. And they're real connections. Which means, you little ones, I haven't talked to you in a little while. I used to say a lot, hey, little guys, look at me, let's see your eyes. I'll do that again. Hey, little guys, sorry. God, if you're baptized, God is your God. He's called you unto faithfulness in this holy body that he set apart to himself, a treasured possession unto himself. You're one of us. And God calls all of us unto faithfulness in him, unto obedience in him, and to trusting the Messiah who's the mediator of this covenant all together. Now, think of, take a step back, think of the whole history of God's relationship to men. From Adam all the way down to the very end to the return of Jesus himself. God made covenant with Adam. Did that impact his successors, his children? You better believe it did. God made, God made covenant with Noah, which built on that covenant that God made with Abraham, or with, with Adam, sorry. Did that covenant with Noah and, and impact everyone, or children, even the beasts and the animals? Sure did. How about Abraham? Well, now we're talking. Now we're talking where God has come with explicit and clear revelation of salvation and of covenant that he makes with, with Abraham and with his children unto salvation. And that's the image. That's the one we're brought into as believers. We're brought into Abraham and the promises of Abraham through that seed of Abraham, the Lord Jesus Christ. And we can go to Moses. We can go to David. And finally to the new covenant where Gentile, we are finally included in this Work of salvation that God's been passing down generation to generation, covenant by covenant. 
So there are solidarities or connections at every point in here for us. The whole thing hangs together. It's not just like a bunch of separate covenants that don't touch each other. It's all unfolding, that God is unfolding this drama of redemption and teaching his people along the way, and including more and more, especially in the new covenant, the Gentiles. God's plan is to unite all things, from Adam to Abraham to the far-flung nations to the very cosmos itself in Christ Jesus. One last turn. Turn to Ephesians chapter 1. I want you to see explicitly that that's the case. Ephesians chapter 1. Just this section starting at verse 7. In him, in Jesus, we have redemption through his blood. The forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. Okay, so far so good. Those things kind of make sense to us, I think, as regular Bible-believing evangelicals, or at least hopefully they do. Verse 8, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight. Again, so far so good. Making known to us the mystery of his will, according to the purpose which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. Christ Jesus is the very centerpiece from Adam all the way to the end. All of God's covenantal dealings and unfolding of history and his redemption is all in Christ and will be fulfilled in Christ, such that all things in heaven and on earth will be united in Him. Jesus Christ is the middle of all of it. He's not just the Savior of your sins, though He is the Savior of you and your sins. But He's also the Savior of the entire world, the cosmos, the whole thing. Jesus Christ is Lord and Savior of all of it. And that salvation will be dispensed exactly according to the foreknowledge and predestination of God himself, which we've read about in these earlier chapters. Everything hangs together in Jesus Christ. The great eschatological solidarity and connection of all things is in Christ. God connects things up. God connects us up into his way of connecting, his covenantal way of connecting and, 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 and teaching us that we're not just individuals, we're not just in our own skin doing our own thing, but we are connected the way God has established that we are connected. And that can go from Adam, as we started off with the example. We all died in Adam. In Adam, we all sinned and we all died. We have a real connection, spiritual connection with Adam. All those who believe have a real saving spiritual connection with Jesus Christ. But God's connected up things far beyond that. Way more connections, and they don't all mean the same thing. Like I say, they're not all down to the very bottom, like Adam and Christ are. But he's still connected us up. We can think of that in terms of families. Uh, are you who you are? Partially because of your parents? Partially because of your grandparents? Partially because of your siblings? Of course. God's connected us up in such a way that that's the case. But he's also connected up people in his way of covenant of taking out of the world a people peculiar unto himself and ministering to those people that they should believe, that they should receive his grace and his salvation. And then he starts calling people out of the world, out of the Gentiles, out of the far-flung world to come into that holy people. That they should be holy. That their children should be holy. That their unbelieving spouses should be holy. This is the people of God. And the word of God. The promises of God. The threats of God. All come to that people. That in it, the elect will believe. And the rest will be hardened. And so says the scriptures. So Christian, hopefully this gives you a way, I think, in, a foothold into the way the Bible talks about our lives and how we are connected by God's decree and by His revelation. We're not just a bunch of individual monads bouncing around. 
And we all kind of like come together and here we are, a bunch of individuals for church, and then we break up. God's made us a body. He's called us out of the world. He's united us one to another because He's united us to Christ in our baptisms, and we're all in me who do not bear fruit. They're still in Him. So Christian, listen to this. Don't be the kind of branch in Christ Jesus that bears no fruit. Because the end of that is death to be cut out. Be ye the kind of Christian that God calls and bears much fruit so that the vine dresser comes and prunes that branch so that it can bear more and more fruit. All to His glory. All to His honor. That Jesus Christ may be praised by us and even in the world as they see our good works and glorify our Father in heaven. Amen.